May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I bought myself a new iPad recently. Y'all might not know this about me, but I'm a, an Apple fanboy. I mean, I'm, I'm maniacal about Apple products, have been for a long time, ever since I could first afford them. But for a long time, I couldn't afford them. Then I got where I could, and I fell. And this is the new iPad Mini 6 with its handsome, I would say stunning new design features. And it's unbelievable, truly astonishing A15 chipset. I mean, it's something. Now, it's so petite, you would never guess it, but this little baby's got the power. I mean, this thing has got the power. <laughs> and in preparing my older iPad, as one does, to get uh, ready to pass it on to its next owner, obviously I'm going to sell it to somebody, I was following the steps Apple sets forth to be sure that your iPad is not bearing away to the next owner uh, classified sensitive information which you don't want anybody else knowing such as your banking passwords that would not be a good thing so I'm I'm going through these these steps and I've gone through three or four already when I come to the step which is labeled erase all settings and data now inasmuch as I was carefully following these steps I wasn't too worried about this so I I went ahead and, and hit the button um, and that's when I saw it there appeared before my eyes the ominous words, Are you sure you want to do this? This cannot be undone. Now, I thought I was sure. You know, I was following the steps, but that sounded like a pretty, pretty grave warning. Are you sure you want to do this? This cannot be undone. So I uh, sat there for a few minutes thinking, you know, do I know what I'm doing? Do I really want to do it? Well, I did it. But that is certainly the question of the day. Are you sure you want to do this? It cannot be undone. And it's not so much a question, an interrogative, as it is a very sharp warning. Our famous, or more truly infamous, epistle text read this morning is warning us not to commit an egregious act of treachery against God, which will be fundamentally irremediable irreparable, irreversible in its tragic consequences. We are being warned about the catastrophic sin of apostasy. Now, apostasy is not an act of defiance by the unregenerate against the God which they despise. No, it's an act of treachery by the children of God who somehow have become so deluded in our thinking that we wish to turn away from the very God who graciously brought us into new life in relationship with himself. Apostasy is a sin of treachery committed by believers, not an act of defiance committed by the unregenerate. As the letter to the Hebrews makes so clear in its third chapter, one of the fundamental functions of Christian fellowship, one of its purposes, is that of encouraging one another so that we stay far, far away from the terrible possibility of apostasy or falling away from God. He puts it this way, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, 
The Greek verb behind the expression to fall away and to fall away from the living God is precisely the Greek verb behind the English word apostasy. And that is precisely what we're talking about today. And Christians are to take care that we not let our hearts get hardened such that we do this terrible, terrible thing. One of our historic Anglican homilies, I was so delighted that Craig spoke from one of them last week, but one of them is on the subject of apostasy. That's what it's all about. It's entitled Homily on the Declining from God, and its subtitle is A Sermon on how, How Dangerous a Thing It Is to Fall from God. Very dangerous. And in its first section, it brings up the tragic example of King Saul. This classic example of apostasy will not be, cannot be rightly understood unless we're clear about the fact that Saul was definitely, he was absolutely a regenerate man. And about this, the scriptures leave us in no doubt whatsoever. First Samuel chapter 10, God speaking through the prophet says this to Saul. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then two verses later, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. The scriptures could not be clearer about the fact that Saul was a regenerate man. He experienced the Spirit of of God in a dramatic and life-changing way. He was given a new heart by God. He was made a new man by God. He was chosen to be Israel's first king. But of course, it does not end well for Saul. Two great acts of rebellion turned God against him to such a degree that God took away his own spirit from Saul and sent in his place an evil spirit to harass him. 1 Samuel 16, 14 states this, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, the depression and the fury which resulted from the assaults of this evil spirit were to some extent mitigated by music. That's why David was sometimes called in to play his lyre for Saul. But Saul's state of mind and soul degenerates terribly, and his life ends in chaos and disgrace. God took away his kingship, his kingdom, most of his sanity, and at the very end of his life, his army, having been overwhelmed by the Philistines, Saul falls on his own sword to avoid being tortured and killed brutally by the enemy. The Philistines find his body, cut off his head, and hang his headless body on the wall of one of their cities. A gruesome trophy for the enemies of Israel. And a gruesome reminder of just how far one of God's chosen servants can fall when apostatizing and falling away from the living God. What had started with such promise, well, it ends in such disgrace and tragedy. Why? Well, Saul decisively turned away from God and consequently was rejected by God. And when we remember the many sins of his successor, King David, well, we wonder what Saul could have done which was so much worse than David's adultery or murder. But Saul's sins were not sins of passion or sins of weakness, but sins of overt defiance against God. What were they in particular? There are two. First, He offered up sacrifices on the battlefield when he should have waited for Samuel to arrive and offer them properly and appropriately. Secondly, he refused to utterly destroy Amalek as God has very explicitly commanded him to do. 
Those are the two things, and for that reason, it all went south. But today's sermon is not about Saul, but about apostasy. But we would do well to recognize that David, in his many failings, which were grave indeed, was nonetheless regarded by God as a man after his own heart, was he not? Saul, on the other hand, was rejected by God and cast off. Why? Not because he was a sinner. David was also a sinner. But because he was an apostate, and David was never that. We are all sinners, and we turn to God daily to forgive us and cleanse us from our many sins, but we must not, we absolutely must never become apostates. For that is a defection from God which is irremediable. It is permanent in its consequences. So first, let's establish the fact that in this act of apostasy, something is given up and given up forever. Today's text states this, for it is impossible. That's a very important word to understand his meaning here. Impossible. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Once you do this terrible thing, well, it's a done deal. It can't be undone. He also emphasizes the irremediable nature of this act in his description of Esau's great defection in Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what he says. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. As hard as Esau tried to convince his father to relent, and also offer him the blessing of the firstborn, Isaac remained unmoved. What was done was done. Jacob and not Esau would experience the blessings of the firstborn. Esau had given it away, and it was no longer his, and never would be again. Similarly, Hebrews chapter 10 talks very explicitly about the point of no return of the one who commits the willful sin. And this is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew expression of the sin of the high hand picture it the sin of the high hand there was no sacrifice stipulated in the old testament cultists for the sin of the high hand this was not a sin of weakness or a sin of passion but a sin of raised fist defiance treachery against god numbers 15 specifically names many different provisions for sacrifices for those who have committed various unintentional sins but at the end of the section moses says this hear this carefully but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. There's no sacrifice to remove it. His iniquity shall be on him. There is no sacrifice for sin of that nature, the sin of the high hand. And with this distinction in mind, the author says these terrifying words, and they are truly terrifying words in Hebrews chapter 10. Hear, hear them. For if we go on sinning willfully, that's in contrast to unintentionally, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? And lastly, in our facing the troubling reality that the sin of apostasy is irremediable, let us consider the writer's use of Psalm 95. A major theme of Hebrews is the importance of God's people entering into God's rest, and yet the very real possibility of not doing so. And this concept is developed with explicit reference to Psalm 95, and twice it's quoted. Psalm 95 is the Magnificat, you know, in our morning prayer. Uh, no, excuse me, the, the Venite. Some of you should raise your the Venite, not the Magnificat. But uh, he quotes it first in Hebrews chapter 3. Hear this carefully. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Or again in the next chapter, chapter 4, but since it therefore remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Both in the Hebrew of Psalm 95 and in its Greek translation in the Septuagint, God's language about them never entering into the rest, with its initial reference being to the promised land, of course, states literally, the actual words are, if they shall ever enter into my rest. I want you to hear that because it's kind of surprising. The text says, if they shall enter into my rest, and every English translation in the history of the world says, they shall not enter into my rest. Why? Because it's a figure of speech. It's a truncated self-curse. If these folks ever enter into my rest, and then he stops the sentence, but the implication is, if you completed it, may I be torn limb from limb. So as long as I have any power to stop it, this will never happen. And when you're talking about the Almighty God, well, he does have the power to stop it. So when he says this will never happen, we should believe it. It's just not going to happen. It's impossible that it ever could happen. For The Almighty has set his face against the very possibility. So... There is some act of treachery against God which is being warned against, an act with irremediable consequences. So the question is, well, what is this act? To whom is this warning directed? And what are the means of our avoiding ever drawing close to that devastating decline from God? And I would surely take a class, not a sermon, to develop all that might be said here. But I think there's good reason to think that the letter to the Hebrews, and, and by the way, this is a, not a strange opinion. This is the dominant opinion right now in commentaries on Hebrews. But it was directed to, to Jewish Christians, which is to say Jews who had embraced the Christian gospel and acknowledged Jesus as their Savior and their God. And now, under the looming threat of a deadly persecution, they're being tempted to trim their Christology so that they would once again be regarded as legitimate Jews with all the protections that implied in first century Roman Empire. Furthermore, a huge percentage of the persecution of Christians during the first century came from Jews. So to become once again a card-carrying Jew would remedy that particular problem, wouldn't it? 
and their particular evasion of a full-bodied Christian confession was to downgrade Jesus from God incarnate, which the Christian church has always confessed, to some sort of angelic being. Once again, it would take a class, not just a sermon, to unpack this fully, but consider chapter 1 in this light. The first words of Hebrews are these. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Those are the first four verses of Hebrews. If you read the rest of chapter 1, what is it all about? What is every word of it about? Comparing the preeminent glory of the Son, the divine Son, to the angels. You have the Son, who's the creator, who's God, and you have the angels who are ministering spirits. So there couldn't be any greater contrast than his status versus the status of the angels. And this group is tempted to downgrade Jesus to a lower position, a position somehow related to the angels. Now, he's warning them, and he's warning them with language more severe than you'll see anywhere else in the New Testament, that they really must not do that. For Jesus is uniquely and incomparably the divine Son, the very agent of the creation, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one upholding the very universe by his word of its power, and to start to regard him as less than that toward the end of being re-Judaized and thereby saving their own skins would be an act of treachery, which would be it would utterly destroy their Christian witness, of course, and bring them under God's wrath in a terrible, terrible way. They're feeling intense pressure to downgrade Jesus from divine Son, God incarnate, to some lesser spiritual being, and the author saying, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't do that. Now, it's my view, it's my opinion, that we Christians living in a profoundly secularized and pluralistic Western culture are being sorely tempted toward the very same thing. What do I mean? Well, there's tremendous cultural pressure in this pluralistic environment in which we live not to believe or to assert that Jesus is the exclusive, key word there, the exclusive means by which sinners might be reconciled to the Father. It's fine and dandy to believe and proclaim that Jesus is my Savior, my Lord. Nobody cares about that. But it's quite another thing to insist that he is the only Savior, the only Lord. And yet we remember what Jesus himself said. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do we disbelieve what Jesus said? Or the apostles, what they so explicitly said. Think of Acts 4.12. There is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Then and now, and I think even more so now, the primary offense of the Christian gospel is its particularity, its exclusivity, and clinging to that aspect of the historic Christian gospel is widely regarded as narrow, arrogant, and condemning of others who hold different religious convictions, and sometimes in great earnestness. And perhaps no one has been more inclined to compromise that aspect of our faith in recent history, and this will probably shock you, but than American Anglicans 
are Episcopalians. It might surprise you that I would say such a thing, but I believe it. I'm going to say it, and let me explain why. Marcus Borg, the former president of the Anglican Association of Biblical Scholars, represents this shift in Christology in the rather classic and definitive form in his book, wildly popular book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. How many of you have read it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, by no means. He said this. These are word-for-word -word quotes. No changes whatsoever. I've read his book several times. Marcus Borg said this, quote, Imagining Jesus as a particular instance of a type of religious personality known cross-culturally undermines a widespread Christian belief that Jesus is unique, which most commonly is linked to the notion that Christianity is exclusively true and that Jesus is the only way. Footnote 42. We'll come back to that. The image I have sketched views Jesus differently. Rather than being the exclusive revelation of God, he is one of many mediators of the sacred. Yet even as this view subtracts from the uniqueness of Jesus and the Christian tradition, it also, in my judgment, adds to the credibility of both. So then let's go to footnote 42 and see if he clarifies something. Here's what he said, word for word. This is what Marcus Borg says in footnote 42 of his famous book. To amplify slightly, I would agree that Jesus is unique in one sense of the word and deny that he is unique in another. In the sense that Jesus is not exactly like any other religious figure, he is unique, and so are the Buddha, Muhammad, Lao Tzu, and for that matter, every person. But in popular Christian usage, the uniqueness of Jesus is most commonly tied to the notion that he is the uniquely and exclusively true revelation of God. It is this meaning of his uniqueness that I deny. So in what sense does Marcus Borg assert the uniqueness of Jesus? Bill is not Philip. Philip is not Bill. We're unique. And Jesus is unique in no greater sense than that, which is to say he's not unique at all, because every individual in the world is unique in that sense. Now, this book, which was released in March of 95, received almost universally rave reviews from the Episcopal intelligentsia. And, of course, Marcus Borg was by no means alone in his daring new understanding of the person of Jesus. In Episcopal circles, we began hearing such nonsense coming from virtually every direction. Catherine Jefferts Shorey echoed that kind of stupidity. But we live in a culture where those holding to the particular and exclusive claims of the historic articulation of the Christian gospel are utterly disdained. There is immense cultural pressure to move beyond those aspects of the biblical gospel. But make no mistake, to do so is to commit apostasy very, very similar to the specific apostasy our authors warned against in the letter to the Hebrews. So, to whom were these warnings directed? One school of thought has held and argued that this language could not be directed toward believers in earnest because the consequence of this apostasy is damnation, and those who have been justified and forgiven cannot possibly become once again damned. This approach holds fast to an important truth, even what fundamentally misreads Hebrews. John Calvin, in his commentary on Hebrews 6, said this. This is a quote, direct quote. But I cannot admit that all this is any reason why he should not grant the reprobate also some taste of his grace, why he should not irradiate their minds with some sparks of his light, why he should not give them some perception of his goodness, and in some sort engrave his word on their hearts. Otherwise, where would be the temporal faith mentioned by Mark 4.17? There is therefore some knowledge, even in the reprobate, which afterwards vanishes away, either because it did not strike roots sufficiently deep, or because it withers, being choked up. What Calvin is doing here is taking the language of tasting, seen in the expressions who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and the language of enlightenment seen in the expression those who have once been enlightened and he is interpreting those words in a manner such that he imagines such language might be used of the reprobate which is to say the non-elect unbeliever who has been predestined to hell now it's surprising and disappointing to me to see in the writing of a man of such exceptional theological genius such shoddy and unnatural reading of the words of scripture it's not merely wrong it's truly laughable to taste something is a common hebrew idiom of experiencing something and fully this very same author whoever wrote hebrews i think it's barnabas earlier in hebrews chapter 2 uses that same verb of jesus death hear this but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of god he might taste same verb taste death for everyone or again, his treatment of the language of enlightenment, as though it meant no more than to irradiate their minds with some sparks of his light, is far wide of the mark of the author's obvious meaning. For this same author used this same word in chapter 10 as a clear reference to Christian conversion. Says this, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, the exact same word, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Calvin misread the warnings of Hebrews as badly as could be imagined. But then a school of thought unhappy with Calvin, a tradition called Arminianism, after Jacobus Arminius, or more widely known in modernity as Wesleyanism, because of the tremendous influence of the Arminian theologian John Wesley, they erred in quite a different direction recognizing the implausibility of the Calvinistic reading of the warnings, they jumped in with both feet and said, essentially, of course these warnings are directed toward fully converted Christian people. There's no doubt about it. And this proves that a fully converted Christian is capable of losing his salvation and ending up damned once again. But does it? If Calvin's reading made a hash of the plain sense of the language of Hebrews, and it certainly did, the Arminian or Wesleyan approach did the same with respect to the stated consequence of the apostasy and of the broader biblical teaching about the means and the nature of our salvation. We who are now seen by the Father in terms of the perfect righteousness of his Son, those whose every sin was nailed to the cross and satisfied by the propitiating substitutionary death of Jesus, cannot possibly under any circumstance become once again damned. It's impossible. I'd love to teach a course on that, but the scriptures make that plain. Once your sins are forgiven, they're dealt with. Once you're justified, the Father sees you through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's something that can't be changed. It's a done fact. So Christians cannot become once again damned. But while the Calvinist reading and the Arminian reading sharply disagree about whether or not a true believer can lose his salvation and become damned, they both agreed on one thing wrongly. They were both wrong to agree with this. Both the Calvinistic and the Wesleyan reading of these warnings wrongly imagined that the threatened jeopardy was hell. But there is no reference to hell here, none whatsoever. A field was not burned to render it forever destroyed. A field was cleared with fire to render it suitable for a future planting. This is a temporal judgment, not an eternal destruction. 
In language of God's fiery wrath is frequently used with reference to his anger against his unfaithful people. One commentator named Hodges put it this way, Naturally, the reference to burned has caused many to think of hell, but there is nothing in the text that suggests this. God's anger against his failing people in the Old Testament is often likened to the burning of the fire. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 10, even this writer could say with intense metaphorical effect, our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12. In fact, to think of hell here is to betray inattention to the imagery employed by the author. The burning of a field to destroy the rank growth it had produced was a practice known in ancient times. Its aim was not the destruction of the field, which of course the fire could not affect, but the destruction of the unwanted produce of the field. Thereafter, the field might be serviceable for cultivation. That's good. Or another commentator named Constable puts it this way. Burn does not mean burned in hell. Compare 1 Corinthians 3. In ancient times, as well as today, farmers often burned their fields to remove unwanted vegetation, not to destroy the field itself. This is evidently a judgment on a believer that God allows because of his or her apostasy. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 10, John 15, Hebrews 10. The judgment might result in premature death in some cases. Compare 1 John chapter 5. However, the text does not warrant concluding that this fate will befall every apostate. Some fields, once burned, turn out to be more productive in the future. And that might be what God's judgment would lead to in the case of some apostates. Compare 1 Timothy 1. And you should, that's a very interesting text on this topic. The purpose of the burning or chastening is restoration to fruitfulness. Compare 13 and 18. I believe this is entirely correct. God's judgment upon the apostate is not eternal damnation, but rather some loss of privilege or position in the kingdom. It's a loss of reward. The Israelites who rebelled in the wilderness were not damned. They were just disallowed from ever entering into the promised land. And do remember that this was true of Moses as well. It's quite a misreading of those warnings to imagine that hell or damnation is in view. They're not. But the threatened loss is real, and as so many sections of Hebrews make clear, it is an irremediable loss. That person might very well find his way back into some sort of relationship with God, but a terrible price will have been paid for the treachery, a terrible price. So, in drawing this uh, rather sobering, I can see it on your faces, (laughs) sobering sermon, to a conclusion, you don't hear many sermons on apostasy, we simply must consider briefly his recommended or at least implied safeguard against this terrible evil. At the end of chapter 5, he had briefly touched upon the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. We just talked about that, the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. And then he says this, about this, this issue, the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's just not sure how successful he will be in discussing this particular topic with them, for they're dull of hearing. They're requiring always theological milk rather than the solid food of the more difficult biblical doctrines and are profoundly unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, the implication is clear. An important protection against the sickness of soul 
that might move one toward this terrible treachery is an active, balanced, and mature wrestling with God's word like an adult. By this time, they ought to have become teachers, those who are dispensing God's word to others rather than just babes who passively suck down the teaching they receive from others. This might not have involved formal positions of teaching in the church, it might have, but they could well have found informal opportunities to teach in the family, in the community of faith less formally constituted. A babe can't do a thing but eat and grow. An adult can reach out to others with God's truth and thereby expand God's kingdom reach in this world. This type of mature, active theological growth is not merely a responsibility, it is certainly that, but it is a safeguard against the sorry state of soul which sets one up for a terrible, terrible fall. And we will not be that sort. God being our help, we will instead be, as he said in our passage, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Or again, as he said at the end of chapter 10, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Dear Lord, let it be so. Amen.